1 Corinthians chapter 9, and some of you may be wondering, why are we out of the Gospel of Mark? Well, because it's kind of a special day. And the next section in Mark's Gospel, if you've been following, is on the end of the world. And uh, I don't know, I just didn't really want to preach on the end of the world on Father's um, Day. But it, it, it will be an encouraging message, though, just so you know, okay? It's really, it'll be a little series that we're going to do on end times that I think will, will help you and encourage you. But for today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is calling all men. Now, I've shared a little bit of my history with those of you who have been at Grace Life for, for very long. I loved athletics in high school. Um, I loved track and field, especially in football. And as much as I wanted to be a, a sprinter, um, really my, my true gifting was long distance. Uh, and, and I loved the mile run, 1,600 meters, four laps for those of you that don't know. And man, I just love that race. I love everything about it. It's a gut race. And my coach would always talk about a man named Roger Bannister. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he accomplished a feat that was amazing in 1954. Up until that time, no human being, at least recorded, I'm sure some human being ran a four-minute mile, (laughs) somebody chasing him or an animal chasing him, but it just wasn't recorded and documented, okay? But no human being had ever broken a four-minute mile. Nobody had ever ran four laps, 1,600 meters in under four minutes. In fact, four minutes and one second had been the standing record for 10 years. And scientists and and all kinds of people weighed in and they said it's impossible to break a four-minute mile. It's impossible. The human body cannot withstand that much endurance. In fact, not only is it impossible to do, it's dangerous to try, they said, because your heart can actually explode. Well, Roger Bannister was going to Oxford and he was entering the medical field. And he loved running, and he was just really interested in breaking that record. He had set his, his mind and his life on that prize. That's all he wanted. He wanted to break the four-minute mile. And everyone laughed at him and scoffed at him and said, you can't do it. You're not gifted enough. But he had a strategy. See, he believed that the key to breaking the four-minute barrier to the mile was your pace. See, most people will run really hard and then slow down and then run fast again, which is a good way to lose weight. That's why people you see running do that. You use up a whole bunch of oxygen when you do that. And Roger Bannister was smart. He was a medical student and an athlete. And he said, no, the way to do it is you have to keep your pace the same. You have to run every lap the same. And so he had this regimented training schedule every day during lunch. Now, keep this in mind. He's training for like an Olympic event. He's he's training to break a world record while he's a medical student at Oxford and he works as an apprentice at a hospital. That's mind-blowing to me. If you know anything about medical students and, and, the, and the pressures and the academic pressure put on them, he was doing both things at once. But every day during lunch, he would run 10 laps. He would give himself two minutes to rest in between each lap and he would run with a stopwatch in his hand. And in a matter of 10 weeks, he was able, I think, to decrease his individual lap time by four seconds. If you know anything about track and field, that's incredible. And he did it really without any help, without a coach. People in the track and field world made fun of him. They said, he doesn't even have a coach. Who is this joker? But see, he had a strategy, and he had a mission, and he had a motive. He wanted to break the four-minute barrier. So the day came, 1954, I think it was in May, over 65 years ago, this 25-year-old British medical student lined up on on the field And his third lap came, and he had to break a 59-second final lap in order to do it. And the sucker did it. He did it. In fact, he said, 
Looking back, he remembered thinking during the race, my legs seemed to meet no resistance at all, as if propelled by some unknown force. He was pushed forward by a combination of fear, of failure, failure, fear of failure, and of pride. He took in the encouragement of the crowd, and he remembered looking at the finish line and imagining it to be moving further and further away. He lunged at the thin finish line string and then felt the pain inside his body explode. Every eye was on Roger Bannister and on the announcer, and they announced it. 359.4, new world record. He did it by six-tenths of a second. He had overturned years of expectation as to what the human body was capable of achieving, and he made his country so proud that the Queen of England actually knighted him. That's why he's known as Sir Roger Bannister. And in fact, he went on to become one of the leading neurologists in his field, and after, after he accomplished that, he was done with athletics. He was done. I mean, what a way to go out, man. 25 years old, on the top, you broke the four-minute mile, and you're done. And then you can go on and be a neurologist. And you're a, you're a knight of England. Uh, but I, he was just one of my heroes, and I wanted to be like him. I wanted to break just the five-minute barrier, you know? I wasn't anywhere near breaking the four-minute barrier. But uh, if you're curious, the world record standing to this day is three minutes and 43 seconds. And that's my favorite thing to watch. When track and field comes around, I like to watch the mile runners, man. That's the gut raise. Those are the guys I want to hug and be like, dude, I astounding. That hurts. That's a real gut check to run that kind of a race. But his record only lasted 46 days because he inspired a whole nation. You know, he said what people had said for a decade couldn't be done. He proved that's false. It can be done. But you have to know your mission. You have to adopt the right strategy and you have to be motivated the right way. And there are so many parallels with the Christian life and what Paul says here. So that's really going to be our outline. By the way, there's Roger Bannister breaking the world record. Looks like he's in agony, doesn't he? But don't you know that was the happiest moment of his life and the most painful moment? So our outline today, just really short here, okay? We're gonna look at this passage. Three things, and you say, well, why are you singling out men? It doesn't say fathers. Well, look, that's just there because it's Father's Day. This is for everybody, okay? But I wanna apply this specifically to men because I will be totally honest with you. Maybe I'll get to this a little bit later in the sermon. I grew up in the South, the buckle of the Bible belt, and I can remember the thing we're talking about here is impacting people with the gospel, with the finished work of Jesus Christ, the message about him coming to die for sinners. And I can remember most, just keeping it real and keeping it honest in here, because we're family, most of the people who impacted me as a child and as a young man, as a teenager, were women. They were. It seemed like, at least for me, maybe it was different from you. This is my experience, okay? And I had a great dad, took me to church, was a believer, provided for, for us. Um, most of the men where I lived seemed to be checked out when it came to church, religion, spirituality, evangelism, and the gospel. That seemed to be something that, that, that they relegated to women because, you know, they, they're, they're hardwired to just nourish and they're already used to giving up their freedoms as a mom, and just, it just made sense. Let the moms, you know, the dads hunt and, and go fishing and, and uh, you know, do Little League and all that, and, and the moms really impact the next generation with the gospel. That was just the way it was. That, was. that was a cultural thing, and it was really satanic, to be honest with you, because all men just believed that. That's what, that was their experience. That's what they saw. That's what they felt. That's what they did. And so I really want to challenge everyone today, but especially men and fathers, this is something that does not come easy for us. Maybe you're like me and you, you didn't have the greatest cultural example growing up, 
But that does not lessen at all the charge that Paul gives here for all of us, really. And if you're thinking, well, this is just for apostles and church planners, no. In chapter 11, which is the end of a long argument he's making, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul is calling all of us to look at his example and to follow it. To follow it with the power and the motivation that we find in the finished work of Jesus. So he had a mission, he had a strategy, and he had a motive. And that's what we're going to look at. Um, Point number one. What is Paul after in this passage that Joe read? Well, I want to back up and look at verse 23 because that really summarizes everything that he's going to say here. Look at verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because Paul is talking about becoming a Jew to reach Jews, becoming a weak person to reach those who are weak, putting himself under the law to reach those under the law, becoming an outsider to reach outsiders. And then he sums it up and says, I've become all things for all men so that I might, what, win some. And then 23 says, I do it all for the sake of what? The gospel. Everything that I do, Paul says, the way my life is shaped, the way I organize my day, all of this is for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with all of the people that I'm trying to reach, that I may share with them in the freedoms and the glories and the privileges and the blessings of the gospel. Everything that Paul did was for the sake of the gospel. He would say it in 2 Timothy, I think chapter 2 this way. He would say, all that I do, I do for the sake of the elect, those whom God is calling out to himself so that they may experience salvation in Christ. That was Paul's life. That was everything that he did was shaped by that mission. That was his mission. And it's good that we as a church and us as men and everyone together we revisit this because we're in our fifth year as a church plant. And I've been doing this long enough and I've been a Christian long enough to watch how churches go. They start out with excitement and enthusiasm. Everyone's living on mission for Jesus. Everyone's an evangelist. Everyone's inviting people. Everyone's uh, living on on the, the front lines, pioneering the work of the gospel, reaching their neighbors, talking to their friends and family and strangers and colleagues and, and everyone. And then the church starts to grow a little bit and we get fat and we get happy. And we get apathetic and we begin to drift. This happens. It happens in every church. We begin to drift from our mission. If you want to know what to do to drift away from your objective, the answer is don't do anything. Don't do anything. Don't have a plan. Don't have a strategy. Don't revisit your mission. Just don't do anything and I promise you, you will drift. Just like my kids do when I take them to the beach on a windy day and they get their little uh, sponge boards, what are those things called, and they, they paddle out in the ocean, and they don't pay any attention, they just sit out there, and before they know it, they're half a mile down. Life is like that. We drift. We, we naturally drift. The, whole, the world is against us, our flesh is against us, and Satan is against us. So if we are apathetic and indifferent to this mission that Paul's challenging us with, we will drift. It's year five, and, and the question is, why are we here? Why is Grace Life here in this city in the year 2019? Why do we exist? Paul tells us, for the sake of the gospel, that's why we're here. Anything else, we can do better in heaven. We can fellowship so much better in heaven. We can sing worship songs so much better in heaven. All of us will be on key and and pitch perfect, right? Especially your pastor. (laughs) We can pray better in heaven. We can study our Bibles better in heaven. We'll have perfect knowledge. We'll have perfect relationships. But there's one thing 
that when Christ returns, it's finished, it's over. What is that? It's evangelism. That's it. There's no more of a strategy to reach unbelievers. It's done. It's over. The curtain comes down on history. That's it. So we have been left here to fulfill the mission that Christ began and handed off the baton to the Apostle Paul as one of his ambassadors, somebody representing the king. Paul says, everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel. But that's what happens. We drift. We grow hardened against the outside world. We start to circle the wagons and the people around us. We're known by what we're against, right? Christians are against this and this and this and this and this and this. Instead of why are we here? What are we for? We have, a, we have an important message, right? That's why we're here. Christ left us here to be his ambassadors and to reach unbelievers, to reach outsiders. What's, what's our motto here at Grace Life Church? Grace Life Church, where the insiders exist for the outsiders. Christ left us here for them. For them. That's why we're here. So Paul is saying, everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's mission was a gospel-promoting mission. It defined and shaped his entire life. Everything he did was for that. Everything he abstained from doing was for that. Everything. Paul had good news, and good news deserves to be shared. And look, just, just to make sure that we're all using the same dictionary here this morning, Paul says, everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel. What's that word even mean? Do you know in Greek, the word for gospel means literally good news. And there was this really terrific word picture attached to gospel. Good news would mean that a messenger had been dispatched from a battle that was finished. That would happen in the ancient Near East when the Bible was written Kings would take their armies out to war, sometimes very far from the village or the city that they represented. And there'd be this normal, fierce battle, hand-to-hand combat, blood, guts. Sometimes it would wage for days. And all the people back home that were really depending on the victory of their army would be huddled down, they would be praying, they would be hoping against all hope that, that a messenger would come back with good news of victory. Back then they didn't have, you know, you couldn't text, hey, battle's over, good news, <laughs> have dinner on the table. Nothing like that. No, you were dependent. You were waiting. You would be waiting. There would be lookouts waiting for a runner to come. And then when the victory was settled, the king would dispatch a messenger and he would run as fast as he could all the way to the village because the people would be there on pins and needles waiting. What do they need to do? Do they need to flee into the mountains and hide themselves? Or do they get out, do they, they slaughter the fattened calf and celebrate and have a party? In fact, one of the verses that you would would hear about from the Old Testament that Paul quoted is this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That word is who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. How beautiful are the feet of who? The runner. They would be looking and if it was dry and dusty, they would see a cloud of dust. Oh, there he is. It's a runner. It's a dispatcher. He's been running all night to bring us news. In fact, the most famous runner came from a famous battle. Some people say the most famous battle in ancient Greece. It was the Battle of Marathon. Does that word sound familiar to you? The Persians invaded Greece, and there was this battle. The Athenians were faced with overwhelming numbers of Persians who invaded their their land. And they fought. They were vastly outnumbered, but the victory was theirs. 
And against all impossible odds, the the Athenians and the Greeks won. And so they sent a runner to run from Marathon Valley all the way 26.2 miles to Athens. And, And legend has it that when this runner, and I can't even pronounce his name, whenever this runner arrived, he said two things. He said, rejoice, we have overcome. Two words in Greek. And then he died from exhaustion because he ran the whole way. He had to get that news back to the city that was waiting. So that's where marathons come from. 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens. But can you imagine a runner that had such good news just taking his time or walking or like the family circus cartoon growing up. Did you ever see that when a little boy, his mom would say, now go to the grocery store and get some groceries and come right back. And there'd be this dotted line of everywhere the little boy went, the playground, the ocean, he all over the place. No, this is not a time to go daydreaming or sightseeing. You had a very important message. You had good news. And the good news was this, look, it was a fierce battle But by God's grace, we were able to overcome and subdue the enemy. Victory is ours. We took no prisoners. The enemy has been vanquished. Victory is ours. You don't have anything to fear. You can come out of hiding now, and we can all celebrate. That's the word picture that came with gospel. Good news. And what is the good news for a Christian? Jesus has paid it all. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sin. We, because of his victory, we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. We can come out of hiding. Now, there's a big difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. And I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. Every other religion in the world has a runner who comes and, and has good advice for you. Not good news. Big difference. Good news says the battle is over. We were victorious. There's nothing you have to do. It's all been done already on your behalf. Good advice is a runner coming back and saying, look, we did all we could, but we weren't able to subdue the enemy, so every man, woman, and child for themselves. Get the archers ready. You better go find some equipment. You better go find a sword. You better go get a shield. You better come out of hiding and prepare to fight. Every other religion has good advice. In other words, there's something for you to do still. But Christianity says, it's done. It's finished. Victory is ours. The king did everything for you. He fought on your behalf. And he gave his very life to secure your victory. That's the difference between good news and good advice, between Christianity and every other religion. Christianity says done, every other religion says do. Christianity is about divine accomplishment, every other religion is about human effort. Do you see the difference between the two? And listen, I know that Father's Day is probably just like Mother's Day. There is a lot of pain and agony represented, even in this congregation. Strained relationships, Tremendous agony from loss of life. There's a lot of heartache represented here. And and I'm here to tell you that the good news is not just as if this wasn't enough, that your sins have been forgiven. But listen, guys, the good news is this. The person who is controlling history says there's a happy ending for everyone who's in Christ. And that means this. Whatever suffering or pain or agony you are going through, it has meaning. It has meaning. No other religion can make that claim. Every other religion is, hey, look, maybe it'll work out for the best. We'll do what we can. No, Christianity says this. There is a king who is sitting on his throne, and he is directing history to its final, ultimate conclusion. And not only does the gospel say your sins have been forgiven, but it says God is going to restore everything. 
He's going to restore this fallen planet, our fallen bodies, our fallen relationships. Death has been conquered. How many people are in agony today because of the death of a loved one? The gospel is the only good news that you can have and cling to. It really is. Is that there's hope and there's meaning. Try to find good news and suck it out of any other philosophy or ideology or religion. You're not going to find it. Christianity is the only one with an empty tomb. It says, when we see Christ, we will be like him. We'll have a new resurrected body and a new heart. So it really is good news. And listen, that's such thrilling good news that shaped the Apostle Paul. He was able to forfeit all of his freedoms. And that's point number two. Point number one is you have a mission. Don't forget what it is. The mission, and remember, calling all men is to take this message and do whatever it takes to get it to people that need to hear it. The, the fact that the Apostle Paul is even writing this letter to the Corinthian church, do you remember if you read the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul came to the city of Corinth and he underwent tremendous persecution from the religious people of all people. And he was ready to leave. And, and, and it, the Bible says this, it says he had a dream in the middle of the night and Christ appeared to him and he said, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let anyone hurt you because I have many people in this city. You've got work to do, Paul. There's work to be done here. I've got outsiders here, and I want them to become insiders. And if you leave, that's not going to happen. There's no plan B. You're plan A, Paul. You're my church planner. You're my messenger. You're my ambassador. You've got the gospel. I've sent you. You've been sent. And so the apostle Paul stayed in that city for 18 months, and he planted this church of a bunch of pagan Corinthians that, that came under the power of the gospel and were converted. And now he's writing this letter to them. The church is only two years old because they had already drifted in their mission. Paul said, you've forgotten why you're here. You've disengaged from the world around you. And the message you're sending to people is confusing. So I think that's an appropriate message for us to hear, for men and women to hear today. So the second point is this. Not only... Should you, by the way, the, if you want to see the marathon map, that's how far that runner had to run, 26.2 miles. I just can't imagine having, having news that's that thrilling, that riveting, and hiding it from people, saying, ah, that's hard. I got great news. I know that people are waiting there on pins and needles. They need to hear it, but that's hard. I'm tired. I got stuff to do. I got Netflix things to binge on and... <laughs> events to be at and who's got time for that somebody else will do it if I don't and so often don't we do that don't we fall into that we take good theology and twist it like the sovereignty of God God is sovereign in all things and he has his people whom he has elected and he's going to bring them to faith in Christ the Holy Spirit's going to draw them and we say see God's sovereign his mission can't be thwarted he doesn't need us William Carey was the father of modern-day missions he spent 41 years of his life in India and he was in a church that had good theology. They believed in the sovereignty of God. And one Sunday, he stood up in a meeting after church, and he said, what strategy do we have to be able to reach the unreached pagans in India? And one of the elders said, young men, young man, sit down. If God wants to reach the pagans and the heathens, he'll do it without your, he'll do it without your help, and he'll do it without mine. Uh, no, he won't. <laughs> no, he won't. Romans chapter 10, you know what it says? How shall they believe without a preacher? And how shall he go unless he is sent? Right? 
Isn't that amazing that God, God could have written the gospel in the clouds. He could have sent angels to trumpet the gospel, but he didn't. You know what, in his wisdom and sovereignty, do you know what God has chosen to use? Weak, flawed people like us to carry his message to the end of the earth. That's amazing to me. The Bible says we are all earthen vessels. We're cracked vessels, but we carry this treasure of the gospel. And God gets more glory that way. He wants to use us to carry the message. It's, it's a privilege and it's a responsibility to be his messengers. And so often we forget how glorious this good news really is, that there are people still in hiding that don't know. They still think this battle is being fought. They don't know that the good news is it's already been fought. You can come out of hiding, man. You've got nothing to fear. You've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to prove. Jesus paid it all. So Paul, Paul understood and, and, and adapted that mission, but he also had a strategy. He also had a strategy. Let's look at it. Chapter 9, we've looked at the first section there. And you know what? Just let, let me read it again. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save son. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And then check verse 24 out. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Your strategy. How do you get that message, that good news, to as many people as possible? Well, you have to have a, stra a strategy. The Apostle Paul demonstrates this in so many places. In his, he traveled all, the, all around the Middle East. Now, the Apostle Paul was an amazing man. He really was. He was an apostle. He had amazing power. He could raise people from the dead. He could heal people of any disease. He was very learned and read and studied and cultured and refined. He was a Christian. He had all these rights and powers. But do you know what the apostle Paul did? You know what his strategy was? He forfeited just about all of them. Let me, let me read this little list here. He gave up the right to get married. He gave up the right to be supported financially by other churches. He gave up the right to enjoy certain food and certain drink. He gave up his right to wear certain clothes. He gave up his right to celebrate and practice certain customs and festivals. He gave up his rights to comforts and conveniences. He gave up his right to safety and luxuries. Paul was entitled to all of those things, but he gave all of them up. Why? Why did Paul give up all those freedoms that he had? Because his strategy was, if I don't forfeit some of my luxuries and comforts and conveniences, these people that I'm on mission to reach, this message is not going to get to them. I can remember reading this passage. Can you guys see this, by the way? I remember reading this passage about eight years ago, and it absolutely turned my world upside down. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, and he says this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise 
and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am under obligation. Do you know what that word means in Greek? It means I am a debtor. I'm a debtor. Now, I don't know how, how you view unbelievers. I do not know your perspective on the people who are not Christians. Some of them live lifestyles that you do not like. Some of them practice things that annoy you, that trouble you, that you find dangerous and offensive. And I understand that. But this verse turned my world upside down because to that point, I had never viewed my relationship to unbelievers as one of I'm indebted to them. I have an obligation to them. See, I got it backwards. I thought that unbelievers were indebted to me. Make my life more convenient. Act like Christians. Be nice. Behave yourselves. You know, you owe that to me. And the Apostle Paul rocked my world. He says, no, 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 bro. You got it backwards. We are debtors to them. We have a message that they very much need in order to flourish and thrive and be delivered and rescued and converted. And the Apostle Paul, that shaped his entire life. Every place he went, every city he went to, he made it his aim to find unbelievers and to transfer this message to them. You know what that meant? That meant that Paul gave up a lot of his personal freedoms and rights and privileges. And as I look back on my, my childhood and the culture that I was a part of, I have found that a lot of people are unwilling to do that. A lot of Christians are unwilling to give up any freedoms and any rights and any responsibilities they have. And so guess what? The mission is like in limbo. It really is. So my question, my challenge to you, and especially to men, and since it is Father's Day, I want to ask you this. We've got a whole bunch of young people, not just in this church, but in this culture. Man, do they need messengers. Do they need messengers? And I'm, I will tell you this. If you do not become all things to all people, you're not going to be the person that God's going to use to, to, to reach them. You're just not. That means you, you actually give time and attention and apply yourself to understanding how young people think, the way they communicate, the way they view the world. So often we're like, ah, oh, a bunch of young, bunch of hooligans, you know, a bunch of pagans. Look at them. Look what they're doing. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul did. He became all things to all people. Included in that list, implied is, to the children, I became like a child. I'm going to speak the gospel in thoughtful and meaningful and intentional ways so that children can understand it and see its power. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. But growing up, my question to you is this. What freedoms and sacrifices are you making? How are you letting the gospel shape and organize your life to the extent that you are able to reach people that need the message. That's my challenge to you today. What freedoms and responsibilities are you giving up? I don't have a grocery list. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to convict you and to challenge you. Because if you're, if, I, I would venture to say this, if, if, if the answer is zero, none, you're gonna have to really question whether or not you're being obedient to the word of God. And to the risen king who's worthy of our sacrifices, right? And Paul said, you know, he's going to spend a whole chapter, the next chapter, chapter 10. He's saying, you know what? I gave up eating meat because it offended people. The meat that was offered to, to pagan idols in certain circumstances, I would give that up because it was a stumbling block to people receiving the gospel. And he said, I'll never eat meat again if it's a stumbling block. Now, I happen to like meat. Any carnivores in here? Amen? Yeah. I like steak. Yeah. I mean, it's just a very small example. What a small thing for the Apostle Paul to do. But what an example for us. That's just one of the small things he did. 
All the freedoms and the sacrifices he gave up so that he could embody that message and take it to people and deliver it to people. Paul was entitled to all of those things, and we are too. He didn't have to give them up. He wanted to because the gospel was so glorious and Jesus was so beautiful and so powerful and he saw himself as indebted to others and so he was willing and eager to do those things. And here's what's amazing. The illustration that Paul uses, he is in Corinth. And if you study biblical history, you will know that Corinth was the host city for the Isthmian Gang. I can't even pronounce it. It was like the, the version of the Olympics in the ancient world, okay? Huge, huge event. And no doubt, people in Corinth would have seen athletes training right in front of their face all day long. People training to throw the discus, wrestling, boxing, running. Paul would have seen them and said, man, look at all the freedoms these athletes give up. Have you got, do you enjoy the Olympics whenever they come around? I've been studying a little bit just because I'm so enamored by racing and all that. But people that, that go to the Olympics, you know, they don't make any money hardly. You guys know that, know that right? America is one of the only countries, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but America does not pay their athletes to represent them. If you win a gold medal, you get $37,000. If you win a silver medal, you get $25,000. If you win a bronze medal, you get $15,000. But to just go to the Olympics, you get zero. In fact, the cost of a coach, and you have to, it's a full-time training uh, regimented training thing. You have to, a lot of people have filed bankruptcy just to go to the Olympics. You give up everything. And Paul is saying, hey, look, look at these athletes in Corinth. They have given up everything. All their freedoms, they've given them up. Why? So that they can get this little piece of rotting broccoli and put on their head. And the apostle Paul looks at that and he says, look, if these people can, can, can have such a regimented and, 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 and have self-mastery, that's what the word he uses over and over, self-control. If they can have that amount of self-control for a piece of rotting flour, I can do it for souls to get saved. I can do that. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. And I know, listen, we live in a culture that freedom is like the, the, the chief virtue. It's like I have ultimate freedom, and that means nobody can tell me what to do, and that means that I, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what people believe that freedom is. But listen, that's not freedom. It's really not. And I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you're a grandfather. And you love hanging out with your grandchildren. And you also love the food that you eat. And you happen to like bacon that's greasy and, you know, cake and all kinds of comfort foods, right? You love eating those foods. You want to do that. You love spending time with your grandchildren. You want to do that. Well, guess what? You're 65 years old. You have the physical checkup with the doctor. And he says, look, buddy, things aren't looking good for you. You got some seriously corroded and jammed up arteries. And I'm here to tell you, the bacon and the cake has got to go. The coffee with creamer has got to go. It's got to go or you're not going to last another year. Now, you've got a choice you've got to make, right? Hey, you're free. Go eat your bacon. Get a tub of, of lard in front of you or a tub of ice cream and have fun. You can do that. You're free to do it. But you know what? You might not be around to see your grandchildren when next year rolls around. So let me ask you a question. Are you free to do what you want to do? What happens when your want-tos clash? See, Paul could do any of those things. And you can too. Men, you had the freedom. You can devote your entire life to whatever floats your boat, whatever, whatever is your passion. And you can, you can, you know, shuck the mission that, that, that Jesus has given us to reach the outsiders. 
But you know what the Apostle Paul said? He said, this to me is more glorious. This is more glorious than eating meat. This is more glorious than celebrating and recognizing this festival and this custom. Paul gave up all these rights. And he's looking at these athletes that did that. I mean, if you're a marathon runner, you're free to eat a tub of ice cream every night if you want to. But I mean, I don't know if that's going to help you accomplish the mission, right? Unless you're a sumo wrestler. Maybe then it would. I don't know. But have you guys seen serious athletes? Or, or maybe, I mean, this could be applied to the field of education. If you want to go to medical school and you want to graduate at the top of your class and you want to land a, a, a ludicrous, not ludicrous, my word, man, it's just one of those mornings. You want a career that's going to pay you good, maybe, okay? And you're in a dorm room with all the other guys, and they're not in medical school, maybe. I don't know how all that works. Maybe they're all in medical school, but they're going out and they're partying every night, and they're binging on Netflix, and they're staying out all hours of the night. You got the freedom to do that if you want to, but that's not going to mesh well with the mission that you went to school for, right? You see it in academics. You see it in athletics. You see it in all those fields, all of them. And so the Apostle Paul is giving us this analogy. He's looking around and he's seeing all the people that gave up their personal freedoms. And he's saying, hey, run in such a way that you obtain the the prize. Beat your body. As a boxer, he goes, I'm not shadow boxing here. I actually have a strategy. It's the strategy that Jesus passed down to us. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Every serious athlete does that. They go without. They go without comforts. Athletic training regimes are insane. They're insane. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And I would ask you the question, do you have a strategy? Do you have a strategy to reach unbelievers with the gospel? God's entrusted that to you. You know, Satan has a strategy. You know what Satan's strategy is? To blind us, to deceive us to rob, to steal, to kill, to destroy, to hinder the work of Christ, to oppose the work of Christ, to resist the kingdom of God. That's his strategy. Sin has a strategy. You know the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 4, and it's when Cain killed his brother Abel, and his countenance is fallen. And God goes out to Cain as a beautiful picture of the gospel. God went and sought out Cain. And he said, Cain, what's wrong? Why is your face and your countenance falling? Why are you angry? And this is what he says. He says, Cain, sin is at the door. Its desire is for you, to master you. You know, sin has a strategy to deceive you and to dominate you and then to consume you. So Satan has a strategy Sin has a strategy, and so often for the amazing mission that God gave us, I just find Christians, and sometimes men, they're just checked out. And they're like, oh, well, the women will do it, and, you know, God didn't really gift me. I'm not really gifted in that area. They're not, yet they're not willing to give up any freedoms, any privileges for the sake of the kingdom, for the, for the sake of the message getting there. So that's point two. Last point, really, really fast. What is the motive? The motive is this prize. Paul is also making this analogy and saying, look, all these athletes, they run around for a rotting piece of leaf they put on their head. He said, we do it for an imperishable crown. Do you see the difference? What a dramatic contrast. He's saying, their fame is going to fade into glory. Let me ask you guys a question. Who won the downhill skiing competition in the last Olympics we had? Exactly. 
Exactly. Who won the gold? Who got $36,000, got recognized, and got a medal hung around their neck? You don't know their name, and I don't know their name. Who won the Super Bowl five years ago? Don't think about it too hard. Some of you know the answer. You're going to run my analogy. Who won the MVP? You don't know. You don't know. Most of us don't know. Most of us honestly don't care. Who cares? That's going to fade into insignificance. That little read, how ridiculous is it? The Apostle Paul is saying, look, these athletes are willing to give up all their freedoms for just this honor that's just fleeting. It's fleeting, it's fading. And Paul's saying, there's a much more glorious prize that we have. And that's what the Apostle Paul referred to the churches as. He says, they are my crown. Did you know that? He called the Philippian church, he said, you are my crown. You are my joy. On that day, when I stand before God, the award that I'm going to get is the Apostle Paul. You were used as an ambassador, ambassador, as a messenger from Christ to reach the outsiders. That's the only acclaim that Paul wanted. And that's what he's talking about here. And then the last thing it says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That means to be proven false. And it's not this, Paul's not saying you've got to compete to gain your salvation. That would go against everything that the Bible teaches about grace and faith, right? No. He's saying that you're not going to be getting any awards. There is a reward to be given for faithful messengers. That's what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. And he's saying, if you have no drive, you have no ambition, you haven't given up any freedoms, in fact, you may even be proven a, a, a false Christian. Maybe you were never really gripped by the message the way you thought you were. But that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And the ultimate motivation for us, you know what the ultimate motivation is? When we rehearse the things that the Apostle Paul gave up, and maybe we think of some of the personal freedoms and privileges that we give up, we, maybe even we risk our life. But think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus became. You know, Paul became weak. Paul became a Jew. Paul, Paul became all things to all men. You know what God did? You know how consumed God was with his mission to redeem human beings that he created in his image and that have fell into sin and ruin? You know what he did? He became a man. God became a man. He crawled inside a human body, subjected himself to time, to suffering, to, to murder. That's... that's unbelievable to think about. God became killable, allowed human beings that he created to nail him to a cross. He became the, he gave up the ultimate cost and the ultimate freedom, his life. He became all things to all people so that he might redeem and, and call the people unto himself. Jesus gave up the ultimate sacrifice. He gave up the ultimate freedom. He gave up the ultimate privilege. He laid aside his lofty throne of glory in heaven and he became a person and lived 33 years on the earth perfectly. He ran the perfect race. And look, it's Father's Day, and I know a lot of agony and a lot of grief. I want to tell you, there's only one perfect father, and it's not you, and it's not me. And there was only one perfect son, and it's not you, and it's not me. And put your hope and put your trust in him. And he is a worthy king to have his message communicated through flawed, fallen people like us. He is worthy of the greatest sacrifice that we could give, even if that ends up being our life. That's why the early Christians, whenever they were thrown to the lions, they went singing. 
In the book of Acts, when they were persecuted, it said they went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And I think we have lost that perspective because we've lost how glorious the gospel is. The good news has just become pretty good news. And in some cases, it has become good advice. Man, we need to revisit the finished work of Jesus, how glorious it is, that it really is good news. It really does mean we share in his victory. We are more than conquerors because of him who gave his life for us. Then we'll be willing to lay down some of our freedoms that we enjoy. But that's a challenge to men. It's a challenge to women. And it's still good news for all of us. And I hope that you've embraced that good news and that you're ready to be sent out to the mission field to live on mission. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this message. uh, And I pray that it was a challenge. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict where conviction needs to happen and bring comfort where comfort needs to happen. Some of us need the portion of this message that's just a reminder that the gospel really is good news. And it really does mean, Lord, that Our striving is over. We cannot be perfect. We cannot keep your law. But there is one who came and was perfect and did keep your law and did die in our place as a substitute because we deserve punishment, Lord, for being violators of of your law. And you came and you fulfilled justice. You satisfied the, the wrath of God. You absorbed it on our behalf. And you came so we could truly be free. Lord, so many people are grasping at freedom the way that people grasp at straws but lord true freedom comes from you the apostle paul in some ways he forfeited his freedoms but in other ways he was the freest human being on the planet he was the one who was in prison singing hymns for all the prisoners to hear he had a joy that was unassailable he had a peace that was just transcendent above all of his earthly sorrows and struggles and lord i pray that there are some people here they need that this morning they don't have that They don't have it. They are attaching their joy and their meaning and their purpose and their significance to things that can be taken from them. And some of them, those things have been taken from them, Lord. I pray that they would renew, God, their their hope in Christ who can never be taken. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's something that can never be taken from us. It can never be threatened. In fact, suffering intensifies our our connection with you in so many cases, Lord. I, so I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have that joy, they don't have that hope, they would confess their Today would be the day that they would confess their sins and they would embrace this good news. They would embrace this message from the King and they would confess their sins and would turn to you and ask for your forgiveness and that you would adopt them and justify them and bring them into your family and bring them an ins, into an insider status. And I thank you for... The good news that was brought to us, somebody, you used somebody to bring that good news to us, Lord, and I'm grateful. May we all be grateful for the messengers you use today, and may we be those messengers, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.